Good morning. morning. Welcome to a new year. I hope that you had uh, a good New Year's, good and safe uh, New Year's celebration. Um, I hope that you spent some time contemplating on the previous year and maybe even setting some goals and some plans as to what you want to do in 2021. Uh, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer early this morning, but um, don't make the assumption that just because we're in a new numerical year that things are just going to automatically just get better in our lives. Uh, that, that just doesn't always happen. Uh, it's sort of like the if you build it, it will come mentality from, or they will come mentality from Field of Dreams if you remember that movie. Um, what we know as believers is some things are out of our control. They're within the providence and sovereignty of God, but a lot of things are within our control to work, to um, move and plan and find the Lord's will and be there. And so from a great perspective, 2021 will be what you make it um, if you are pursuing the Lord's will. So for that small Debbie Downer moment, I do want to say Happy New Year. I was reading on this uh, classical education site that I follow on Facebook, and I found this quote, and I thought it was good for today. It says, an essay whose first sentence is good is an essay with more scope for goodness. A day whose first decisions are good is a day with more potential for goodness. A year whose first acts are good is a year more prone towards goodness. A life whose first years are good is a life more ripe for goodness. My prayer for you is that whatever stage you are in your life, uh, that you see it as an opportunity to do good uh, as you are doing it unto the Lord. I want to say, and I know that I've said this already, but I am so incredibly thankful for you. Um, it would be incredibly difficult to have gone through 2020 without a loving church family, without new friends, uh, without the fellowship of believers. And I am so incredibly thankful for you. Uh, you have challenged me, made me angry in some instances, and have uplifted me to a point where I have seen significant spiritual growth um, in part, in large part, to knowing you and we being a part of the same life on the same timeline. And so I'm thankful for that. I pray that the Lord always uh, reminds me of that, especially when you're angry at me and I'm angry at you. Uh, the last few sermons uh, we spent our time in as we went through Romans 9 is uh, a sermon that dealt with Israel's unbelief. Romans 9, much of Romans 9 is spent really questioning God, not in a negative way, but really questioning to just get some answers. Because what we see with the way Israel responded to Jesus was incongruent, it seems, with the plan of God. Uh, what we saw was a rejection of Jesus as a whole, really, in general, by the chosen people of God and a way made open to the Gentiles for salvation. The predicament that we find ourselves in in Romans 9, or I would say perceived predicament, 
causes Paul to pose some questions and answer those questions on the goodness of God and God's plan. Remember some of those questions that we went through in Romans 9? Paul starts by asking, has the word of God failed? Has the word of God failed? He asks that question or he really poses it in a statement, but it's, it's for us to contemplate on in an inquisitive sort of way. He, he mentions that because the Jews who were God's chosen people were by, by a vast majority unbelieving in the Savior of the world. The ones that God called out as His people rejected His Savior. And so it brought up the question, has God's Word failed? Has God failed in keeping His covenant with His people? And of course we found out quickly that the answer was no. That God has always kept a remnant of people. A remnant of His people. And He will until He returns. The next question Paul asked in Romans 9, is there injustice on the part of God? What we found out is that God saves who He will. And although it's not as, it's not as um, lovey-dovey, or it's not as beautiful as uh, just saying, just the way generally people view salvation, the idea that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven perfectly and exactly how He wants it to be done is inextricable from the Bible or from our lives. Is there injustice on God's part? No. God saves whom He wills. Well then, that brings up another question. If God saves whom He wills, is there injustice? Or why does God find fault? Why does He still find fault? If God... If it's God's choice in salvation, why is man at fault? And the reason, the simple reason that we discovered in Romans 9 is this. That man is still a reprobate. Man is a sinner. Depraved. Unable. By choice, a sinner. And it is not as God... um, It is not just as God is... Uh, that that sin is inconsequential. But God, in His divine providence, chooses to call some out of that reprobation, and He chooses to pass over others. But don't be deceived. Man is still responsible for his sin, because it was man who was sinned, and not God. God then, I believe, chooses some to salvation, And he passes over others. He passes over the reprobate. Today we enter the conclusion on the thoughts of Romans 9. But it's also sort of an introduction to Romans 10. Which is why I separated, I segmented this off um, from our last section. Unbelief is what I want to discuss today in Romans 9. And the calamity of unbelief. Friends, unbelief is not just a sad idea. It's not just something that we worry about when our friends and family don't believe. It is a tragedy. It is a calamity. It is a folly for those who are trapped in unbelief. We see unbelief in our text comes in all shapes and sizes. It comes 
uh, by an outright rejection, which was typically what the Gentiles did. Or it comes by missing the objective, which is what the Jews did. The Israelites of the time missed the objective. They were so focused singularly on fulfilling the law that they couldn't fulfill the law in the right way. Unbelief is a heart issue. It prizes things or accomplishments more than God. It refuses the only known, the only possible remedy for sin. Which I would suggest, at least in part, makes unbelief blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because the end result of unbelief is a rejection of the work of God in salvation. Which that work is done by the Spirit of God. Therefore, unbelief is not just sad. Unbelief is a calamity because it calls the Spirit of God a liar. And says that his work is not what he says his work is. Unbelief is blasphemy to the Spirit of God. Acts 7.51 says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. John Stott said this of unbelief. Unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. It is sinfulness. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to him. For many in our society, unbelief is caused by self-absorption. Unbelief is prolonged for many by distractions and the numbing of our senses. Many professing Christians, for many professing Christians, unbelief is prolonged because we have this belief, this idea that we believe in God because we believe He exists and we believe He is powerful. And even in a sense, we believe who He says He is, but our salvation never grows. We never grow as living stones, as we will see later, because we don't actually see where that belief takes us. We don't actually go to where that belief takes should naturally take us. We live in the most prosperous and free society in all of history, which also would naturally, I think, make unbelief increase. Because of prosperity, often our prosperity makes us think we can do things on our own. What forms, I believe, from prosperity, if we're not careful, are two distinct characteristics of unbelief. And that is a high opinion of self and a low opinion of God. This year, um, New Year's Day, I was going through our year in review of flipping houses with my business partner. And I knew that we did well, but we we did well. We did exceptionally well this year. And as I was thinking about it on New Year's Day, I was thinking, look, look at everything that I accomplished this year. Look at everything that I did. Oftentimes, prosperity causes us to forget how we got to where we were. I looked at that and I thought, look at what I've done. And then, I, and then as I started thinking about it, I thought, oh my gosh, if this thing didn't happen right here, I would have never been here. And this right here was all about God. This was all about God. 
Oh my goodness, this right here, it could have gone the wrong way. And the Lord preserved. This was out of my power, out of my control. It was nothing I did. Oftentimes, and I, and I got caught up in, I, this thought didn't even come to my mind uh, about preaching, for, about bringing it to you until New Year's Day because I had got caught up even in my own prosperity. And I, in some ways, believed that I was the source of my strength and my success. And when we do that, what we do is we take a higher opinion of ourselves and a lower opinion of God, which makes us think that we can do this on our own, which I think is a seed for unbelief. There are many factors that can believe a person to believe in something other than God. I just want to spend a few minutes on the ones that Paul discusses in Romans 9, 30-33. What was it that Paul saw that caused God's people to not believe and the people that were not of God to believe? The first idea that I want you to look at today is the cause of unbelief. Look at Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. What a weird predicament that Paul brings up. The Gentiles, who did not even pursue God, who did not even pursue righteousness as a whole, found righteousness through faith. The people of Israel, on the other hand, spent the entirety of their lives focusing on finding righteousness and could not find it. Their worship for their whole lives was intricate. It was detailed. It was recorded. It was passed down as specifically and as complete as possible from generation to generation. Therefore, the priest in David's time would have been doing many of the same things that Aaron and his priests would have done. And possibly even we see this the same with the Pharisees. They would have followed the same prescription or a similar prescription for pursuing righteousness over countless years. Even to the point of increasing the amount of restrictions and laws that they put on themselves. Because everyone knows throughout history the way to make behavior right is to just make more rules, right? And yet when Jesus came, they were unprepared to receive His leadership. Ever, listen, it is, it, Paul is presenting a mind-blowing thought that the people who did not pursue God found God and the people whose entire structure was set up so that they could see the Savior as soon as He arrived in whole, as a whole, missed Him. This reminds me of me often being task-oriented, being instru I'm an instructions guy. Everybody's like, oh, men never stop and ask for directions. That's not me. 
You know, you're putting together something from Ikea, what's the first thing you do? Not just grab all the parts. You look at the instructions and you see what they, what, you know, how they lead you. I'm an instructions guy. You give me a set of instructions and I feel like I can do anything. That's why I feel like cooking is infallible, right? If you have a recipe, you follow the recipe, it should, if it, if it resulted in something nice for someone else before, it should result in something nice for you, right? But sometimes I get so caught up in the directions, in the instructions, in the form of what I'm doing, and I, and, and I can't get it right still. And it's so frustrating to me because I'm, I'm doing the right form. I'm doing the prescribed things, but I cannot seem to do it like the person that I'm probably watching on YouTube is doing it. There have been times where I've had an expert, usually my wife, but I've had an expert over my shoulder who knows what to do. And I'm like, I got this. I can do this. I'm going to follow the instructions until I get this right. When what, when what the truth of the reality is here, friends, is that the only thing that will make it right for me is to hand over what I was doing to the person that knows what they're doing. Right? We get so caught up in form and function and structure and rules that we forget. Especially in our spiritual life, there is an expert that if we handed it over to him, he would show us and demonstrate to us exactly how it's done. And the people of God were so caught up in form in structure, in work, that when the expert came, they weren't ready to hand over the reins. Oftentimes, unbelief comes. Now, for you procrastinators and you unorganized people, this is not a sermon to be continue on in your organization, but it often comes by not sticking to the form but trusting in the creator of the instructions. Israel had become so law focused that the giver of the law, when he came to them, became a stumbling block instead of a cornerstone. He became a stumbling block instead of a blessing. Which is the first thing I want you to see about the cause of unbelief. And that is the stumbling Stone. Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected. In verse 33 of Romans 9, Paul calls Jesus a stone of offense, a rock of offense, a stumbling stone. Because of unbelief, they pursued God in a form of the way he required. But their lack of faith made their pursuit carnal. And in their carnality, they saw Jesus as a stumbling stone instead of a cornerstone. In their wildest and most vivid image that the carnal mind could draw, they drew Jesus. And they drew the image of Jesus for thousands of years. It wasn't just for a little while. They drew the image of Jesus for thousands of years. Now imagine if you had time to think about the Savior of the world, the Messiah, and draw that image in your mind for thousands of years, what it would look like, right? So they drew a regal, mighty, and strong earthly ruler. 
A warrior who came with the sword. Who was kind and fair to his people. Who was stern. A mightier than David. A wiser than Solomon. True, lowercase g, God among men. They had thousands of years to draw this image. And in their carnality, that's what they drew. This, goes, this kind of goes back to our Advent sermon on why Satan was defeated. Because Satan could not have possibly imagined how God would save the world. He could not have possibly imagined, just as the people of God did not, mostly, when they were looking for a regal royal king, they got a manger. They got a carpenter's son. They got a lowly, humble servant. They got a man whose appearance, Isaiah said, would not be one that you would look fondly upon. They followed a nobody who was followed by nobodies, who was charged with blasphemy. He was charged with insurrection. He hung out with the tax collectors and the harlots before the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the people who had the religious and political power of that time. He was not socially acceptable like they assumed. He was not religiously acceptable like they assumed. He was not politically acceptable like they assumed. Instead of getting a diamond, they got a pebble in the ground just sticking out. A nuisance to their way of keeping the law. A trip hazard on the path to self-righteousness. This unbelief led to a bunch of religious and sometimes sincere, but lost people. I have tried to take a more positive view of the church in general over time. But my great fear is that pews and chairs in church services in this country are going to be filled today with much of the same. Religious and mostly sincere, but lost. Because Jesus is a stumbling stone to self-righteousness. Another thing that was a cause of unbelief is the missed objective. These people were often religious and sincere, but nevertheless they were lost. They missed the entire objective of the law. God's chosen people made His religion just like every other religion. Where every other religion requires what you can do for your lowercase g, God. That's not how God intended it. Faith in the one true God has always been about what God has done for us. The law does not require, excuse me, the law does not equal, obey, obey, obedience to the law does not equal right standing, but faith does. And friends, the most, the greatest stumbling block of Paul's teaching, the greatest stumbling block of the gospel is not that you have to live good lives, but it's that you have to live by faith. It is the greatest stumbling block of Paul's teaching. It is the greatest offense of the gospel. Faith in the one true God has always been 
the key to finding that God. And it was a great stumbling block to Israel because to this point they had imagined everything that they were doing was right in finding God. But what they found was if their acts were faithless, then they were without hope in the world. And to make it worse, Paul says the people who did not pursue in this pre-described way have found it, have attained it. The polytheist, the atheist, the pagans received the righteousness of God. How much more of a stumbling block would it be for the ones who assumed that they were pursuing righteousness to be passed over by the ones that they saw as the scum of the earth? Remember Romans 1? Romans 1 says that the Gentiles were inverting the order of righteousness. They weren't just doing, they weren't just disobeying. They were creating, they were inventing new ways to sin. New ways to break the law of God. And yet those who lived by faith, even those Gentiles who were creating new ways to sin, even we Gentiles were counted as righteousness. How are as righteous? How difficult would it have been for the religious person of the time? The churched person. The learned person. The ones with lengthy Religious history to be passed over. Their heads full, but their hearts empty. Still to this day, friends, the religious person is the hardest person to reach. The person that comes to church gathering on a regular basis, but is faithless, is the hardest person to reach. Not just because of self-sufficiency, because faith, but because faith is hard to quantify. You, it's difficult to convince a person that is doing what they would consider good works that their works are worthless if they are faithless. The irony is that only saving faith can produce the mentality and the clarity to see what actually is a faithful work. It is faith that gives us clarity. That our works are faithfulness. But faithless acts, even if they are prescribed by the Bible, you need to hear this. Faithless acts, that are, even if they are prescribed by the Bible, are sin. Giving to the poor is prescribed by the Bible. If it is not done by faith, it is sin. Not forsaking the fellowship of believers is prescribed by the Bible. If it is not done in faith, it is sin. Loving others is prescribed by the Bible. If it is not done in faith, it is sin. All acts devoid of faith are sin. What it boils down to is that the people of God rejected God because they missed the objective of the law. The objective of the law was so that the righteous people who lived by faith could know what holiness looked like. Could know how to properly pursue God. Not so that they could pursue God in order to be saved. They were saved by faith 
And the law was intended to allow them to become more like the giver of the law. The law was meant, is meant, and will always be meant, always meant to be a guide to know how faith and faithfulness fleshes itself out in our lives. Friends, may we never find ourselves full of religion, but empty on faith. Do we find ourselves practicing the righteousness of the Pharisees or the humility of the sinners at the feet of Jesus? What are our motives in following Christ? What are our motives in being here today? Do we follow Christ out of obligation? Well, this is what the Christian is supposed to do. Do we follow Christ out of external conviction? Well, this is what my wife wants me to do. Do we follow Christ out of necessity? I want my kids to have a good foundation. Or do we follow Christ in faith? That He is who He says He is. And we are nothing without Him. We looked at what Paul said was the cause of unbelief. I want to quickly look at what he says about belief. The cause of belief. Look at verse 33. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. To some friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a fragrant aroma leading to life unto life. And to some, it is the stench of death. To some, it is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who believe, it is the power of God. To some, Jesus is a stone, a stumbling, a roadblock down the path of self-righteousness, a roadblock down the path of independence. And to others, Jesus is the living stone, the cornerstone, which all else is measured off of and upon. The living stone. Isaiah 28.16 says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Psalm 118.22 The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Matthew 21.42 Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And in Acts we find it more certainly. Acts 4.11 and 12 This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders and has become the cornerstone. And then He goes on to say, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given among heaven, where, uh, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Amen. To the Romans, he was weakness. To the Greeks, he was foolish. And to the Jews, he was a stumbling stone. But look what Paul says about who he is to the church. He says it to the church at Corinth. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom 
of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. To some a stumbling stone, but to those who are being saved, He is the rock, the cornerstone, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He is Petra. He is the bedrock that the church is built upon. He is not offensive to those who live by faith. Therefore, those who live by faith will live in accordance to His will. Ever increasingly becoming our own right living stones of faith. That leads to our last little idea, and that's the case for faith. What was the greatest offense in Paul's teaching? Have you come, have you, have you come to understand that before today? Or maybe today was the first time you really saw it at that. The greatest offense in Paul's teaching was that it was faith that saved it was faith in Jesus who is the one true God. Paul and the gospel teaches us that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ flipped their system. They could never earn their salvation, but now they knew it for sure. Hold on to that, friends. Because it wasn't just the people of God back then that need to hear that. Paul boldly claimed that the key element in a right pursuit of God is faith. Look at 2 Peter. We see it also in 2 Peter 2, 4-8. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be, to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. As they were destined to do. By faith, the stumbling stone has become the cornerstone. By faith, the one who sees Christ as his adversary, the one who saw Christ as his adversary, now sees him as God and King. By faith, our empty righteousness is cast away and we become a fragrant aroma, a worthy offering. At the altar of God. Verse 33 says that God the Father, I have laid a stone in the midst of Jerusalem. And we see now, as the entire world does, that whoever believes in Him, that is Jesus Christ the Son, would not be put to shame. Are you believing and trusting in the stone that the builders rejected? Is your life being led by this kind of faith? Or is it being led by religious form? Religious acts. There are many people on the day of judgment who will go to the Lord and say, did we not 
X in your name? Did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do whatever it may be in your name? There are many people who do religious things that are faithless. And they will receive the reward of those religious things. And it's not a good one. But there are those who live by faith. And as an offering to God, they give their lives. Because that's all they have to give. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with this in Matthew 24, 20-25. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like his will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock friends religious confusion times of doubt Struggles personally, struggles in the world, they, they may shake us, but they do not overthrow the person who has believed and has set their house on the rock, the cornerstone. Friends, you may be shaken by what happened in 2020. You may be shaken by what's happened in other times of your life. Maybe you're still living with some past trauma that you haven't gotten over, that you hadn't worked through. Can I tell you, there is a stone that was overlooked and rejected. And he has become a bedrock for those who live by faith. And you can safely construct your walls. And you can construct your roof. And you can put your sheetrock up. And you can even decorate the house in the way that you want to. Because you know that house is going to stand. You don't have to be a tent dweller any longer, friends. Set your house up. On the rock of our salvation. The cornerstone. Against. Which all truth. And all reality is measured. Pray with me today. Lord you are so good. Thank you for being a sure and firm foundation. I cannot imagine going through trials like we've gone through this past year without our church. But more importantly, I cannot imagine going through those trials without the firm foundation, the rock of our salvation. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That for those who live by faith, you are power. And you are wisdom, you are clarity, you are peace. You are understanding as as much as we can understand for the days ahead. 
So we enter 2021 with expectance, with trust, and with hope for a bright future. But even so, Lord, if this year is worse than last, we trust you. Because our foundation is not built on what lasts in this world. But our foundation is built on a rock that was and is and forevermore will be. Thank you, Lord, for that assurance. Thank you, Lord, for that hope. Help us to share that hope to a world that is in desperate need of a sure foundation. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all of our praise. Amen.